Well, we're going to get started today. Last, how many of you were here last week or heard last week's message? We were talking about the wisdom of winning souls. And we started in Proverbs 11.33, which says, uh, he who wins souls is wise. And we talked about that last week. We talked about the, the verse in Matthew 10 that says uh, we should be wise as serpents but harmless as doves and that we need to be strategic and intentional about how we reach others with the gospel. And I promised that I was going to hit a topic today in continuation. I said that today we would talk about how we reach those who are closest to us. And it's interesting that Scripture differentiates a little bit about what it's like to, to um, bring people to the gospel. John chapter 4, verse 38 says this. I sent you to reap that on which you bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and you have entered into their labor. Verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him because of the saying of the woman who was testified, and he told me all that I ever did. He was talking about these Samaritans that were receiving the gospel. And he says that I'm sending you out to receive something, to benefit. How many of you have ever watched a service overseas where there were thousands of people and hundreds, or not if not thousands, came forward and you're like, man, I so wish that I could, I could participate in that. Anybody ever thought that? And, and for good reason. I mean, how exciting is it to be able to participate and, and be at least partially responsible for such a large number of people to be saved? But the Bible differentiates and says that sometimes we are reaping a harvest for which we did not labor. It talks about reaping a harvest for which we do not labor. And the interesting thing is, when people talk about evangelism, and when, when we say that we, wanna, we want to, to win someone to the Lord, most of us think about that type of salvation. Oh, I would love to be there. I'd love to be the one who says, do you want to be saved? And they say, well, of course I do. And then you say, all right, well, repeat after me. And then you pray the prayer. And, and you're like, yeah, I led someone to the Lord. But... That's kind of like someone picking an apple from a tree and saying, I, I grew this apple. They, they were there for the harvest, but not necessarily there for the, the whole process. And it's interesting. First of all, as Christians, we need to understand the process. How many of you have ever heard the term the Romans road? A few people were going old school this morning. Um, it's interesting. As, as a Christian, we need to understand what the building blocks of salvation are, what is necessary for someone to understand so that they will desire to do that. And, and many times, this was something that in the old days, people were, would memorize to try to understand. Nowadays, I have two words for you. Romans wrote. Stick that in Google and you'll find it. You don't have to memorize the entire thing, but I do want you to understand it. If you forget this and you say, oh, I don't remember what was the verse, you can find it that simple. Starts in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. And this verse says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. How many have sinned? All. 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 The first step towards receiving salvation, the first step for someone to, to be ready to receive salvation is for them to somehow grasp that they are included in all. To recognize, I, I am not enough by myself. We get this this. Human nature is to compare. How many of you had siblings? How many of you never competed with your sibling? 
<laughs> Nobody keeps their hand up. It, it is human nature. We have that in us. We just, we just naturally compete with someone around and we pass that on and we begin to look at our lives and we say, well, well, I'm, I, I might do bad things, but I don't do bad things as bad as that person does bad things. So I'm a good person and that's a bad person. But Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The picture that I, I often have in my mind is a picture of chain, of a chain. Now, if you use a chain... To, to accomplish something. Let's just say we're going to use this chain in the, in the spirit of it almost snowing this morning. We'll say we're going to use this chain to pull a car out of the ditch. If we hook the chain to, to one car and we hook the chain to the other, how many links does this chain have? Let's say it has 150 links. In order to successfully pull the car out, how many of them have to remain intact? All of them. If the chain has one weak link and it just snaps, failed. It doesn't matter if that chain then compared itself to another chain that had two weak links. You have twice as many weak links as me. What difference does it make? The Bible says that we have all fallen short. We all have weak links. It doesn't matter if we have three or five or seven, or all 150. God says, we in ourselves are insufficient. We have failed. The second verse, and they call it the Romans road because it's, it's a series of verses right in Romans that just make plain and clear the, the, the road to salvation. Romans 6.23 says this, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So once we've established that we and understand we were insufficient on our own, we have sinned. This next verse, 623, reminds us, first, if we sin, what is the price of sin? The wages of sin is death. So I, I have sin, and sin brings death. But remember, what is death? It is separation from God. We, we, think of, we think of death as the end, but spiritual death is separation. Physical death is also separation. It's when your spirit is separated from your body. It's not the end of you. It's the separation of you. Spiritual death is not the end of your spirit. It's the separation of your spirit from God. So what are the wages of sin? What's the cost of sin? The cost of sin is separation from God. I've always said it this way. God and sin are like oil, his holiness and sin. It's like oil and water. They, they don't coexist. They don't have communion is a better way to put that. So when we are sinful, that is a barrier to our communion and our relationship with God. So God, same verse, says, but the gift of God is eternal life. This verse reminds us that when God offers salvation, he offers it as a gift. He offers it as a gift. We yesterday had this place decked out with different tables with gifts for, for many of the kids in this neighborhood that, that came in. And if we had said, we've got a gift for you. And then after they picked it out, said, well, that'll be 1995. It wouldn't have been a gift. The, we, we understand a gift is something we give. And God gives that gift to us. Romans 6.23. The next one, if you've been here more than once, you've heard me quote this scripture. Romans 10.9 and 10. 
If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that he, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The next scripture says, For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. This Right through Romans. We started at Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 and 10. And what does it tell us? It says that the steps that we take to receive that gift is to believe and to profess. And God says, it is with the heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. Last verse is Romans 10, 13. It says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The last thing that we need to understand is that God has promised this works for you. It is astounding how many people have much of the understanding about God, but miss that aspect. I don't know if God wants me. I'm pretty sure he wants him or her. But if I call on God, will he answer? And we know because God told us, he says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I remember when I was, I was in junior high having a, a debate with someone who had been a pastor and did not understand this concept. And this was, this was in a, a, a setting with a bunch of other students. And he says, well, you know, only some people have been chosen by God to be saved. And I said, well, the Bible says everyone. And he said, well, that depends on who you think everyone is. And one of the other kids in the group there says, score for Josh. <laughs> I never forget that because it's so clear. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. All. All. This is exciting. God brings people through that. That is, that is the road to salvation, that simple concept, understanding, first of all, that I'm not enough on my own. I have failed. I have sinned. Secondly, understanding God has, God, God has paid the price that needs to be paid. There is a price that's paid for sin. I have sinned. There is a price to be paid. Third, if I believe and confess, that price will be paid. And fourth, it applies to anyone who calls. That simple. That's that process. But here's what's interesting. We read earlier that sometimes we'll be there for the end. We won't be there for the middle. This is what 1 Peter 3, 1, verse 5 says. Likewise, wives, be submit, subject to your husbands so that if any do not obey the word. What does it mean? What is he talking about when he says that someone doesn't obey the word? Other translations say don't believe the word. In other words, if your spouse doesn't believe, isn't a Christian, because if they believe with their mouth and or if they believe in their heart and confess with their mouth, what are they? saved. All right, so this is someone who does not believe. It says, so that if they do not believe the word, they may also be one without a word, but by the conduct of their wives, having witnessed your chaste behavior in fear of God, of whom let not be the adorning of garments, outward braiding of hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of clothing, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in which in that which is not corruptible, the meek and quiet spirit, which is the, of great price in the sight 
of God. This scripture is speaking specifically to wives whose husbands are not saved. And it's talking to them about how to win their spouse to the Lord. And it's interesting that it says you're going to do this without using words. Now, I, I, want, to, I want to clarify, I don't, I don't think that this is something that only works for wives on husbands and not for husbands and wives. And it only works for spouses, but not people. I believe that this can be applied to those who are close to us. When we, when we look at the scripture, we should see that and say, okay, for those of you who have someone in your life close to you who does not believe, this is how you'll win them. Now, we recognize that there is a process, there is a road, there is a path of, of acknowledging shortcoming, of recognizing God's gift, of believing and confessing. And sometimes we, we want, we have this thought, well, I need, I need to push and I need to, to preach and I need to explain. And we get that image in our mind of, of Reinhard Bonnke speaking to 10,000 people in, in Africa. And well, he preached at them and they got saved. So I'm going to preach at my. That's not what Paul said or Peter said. He didn't say, well, if your spouse isn't a believer, just remind them every day that they should be. No. He says that they may be one without a word, watching your conduct. I, I read a story about a, a, a tombstone. And this is the inscription that was allegedly on this tombstone. It said, when I was young, I set out to change the world. And I soon realized how great a task that was and resolved to settle for changing my country. Years went by and my goal was still so far from my reach, I decided to try to change only my city. Then I reduced my change, changing, reduced to changing my family. Now, as I lay in my deathbed, I realize that if I had begun by resolving to change myself, I would have surely influenced my family. My family would have likely influenced my city, and my city may have influenced my country, and only then could I have perhaps changed the world. We start by living our lives in front of them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12 says, Having your conversation honest among Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Another translation says, having your conduct honest among the nations in that which they speak against you as evildoers, that they may glorify God in a day of his visitation, seeing your good works. God is calling us to live. Live out our, our beliefs, live out our love, live out our commitment in front of others. I want you to think, just in your mind, I want you to think of a time when you witnessed someone live and exemplify God or his love in their actions. Think of a time. Like think of a moment in your life when you say, hey, I, I saw someone do this. The, the first example that comes to my mind is a little man by the name of Bernancio. And I don't remember exactly how tall he was, but it might have been five foot nothing. I mean, he's, he's a short little fella. But in 1970, um, there was a re some research done, and they said at that time, he was responsible for the gospel reaching 270,000 people of his... Uh, he was... Otomi Indian, or native, I say Native American, but it's Mexico, so an indigenous people group in Mexico in 1970. He continued 
to, to preach and, and start churches into the 90s. And I don't know how many people he reached. But he was riding out of a town where they'd been preaching with a friend of mine. And they're, they're driving out of town. They had been bringing the gospel. There was a group of people there who did not like the fact that they had brought the gospel. And they stood, they hid on the side of the road and took a giant rock. And I don't know if you've ever tried to break a car window, but they don't break easily. They took a giant rock and just threw it through the side of the car, busted through the glass, hit him in the face. And my friend was sitting next to him, said the first thing he said as he hit the gas to try to get out of the way, he said, we need to pray for that man. That exemplifies God's love. When someone hurts us, tries to do us harm, and we respond with God's love, like Jesus said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's, you know, it's not the words that we say that make people just pause. It's our actions. It's our responses. As you think about that, that situation that you thought of, hey, what did they say? What did they do? How many of you would say it wasn't a speech that they gave? As you thought of that example, how many of you, it wasn't a speech? How many are going to raise your hand either way? There we go. I say, how many of it was a speech? Okay, nobody. <laughs> when we think about how someone can exemplify God, an another story that I, I thought was incredibly powerful was about um, someone who went to visit uh, Mother Teresa in Calcutta, and she oversaw a hospital where they would take care of the poor. And there was a person, and I believe that they had leprosy, but either way they had some sort of, of infectious uh, disease where they, they had oozing rank wounds. And tourists had come because Mother Teresa had become so famous that people would just come to see what was going on. And Mother Teresa was there and she was taking, she was personally taking care of the wounds and trying to, to fix this person's wound. And one of the tourists leans over to the other and says, I wouldn't, you couldn't pay me to do that for a million dollars. And without stopping, Maria said, me either. She, it wasn't for the money. She says, you, I wouldn't do it for a million dollars either. There's something so much more. When we exemplify God's selfless love, it blows people's mind. They will be confused. They will say, what, what ulterior motive do you have? You can't possibly be doing this to... For, for, why? Why? Why would you pray for the person who just threw that rock through your window? Why, why would you help that person? Why? It confuses people. But you know what else it does? It draws them to God. Matthew 12, 34 says, How can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of the heart brings out good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure brings out evil things. As we think about this, it's, it's easy to say to ourselves, okay, I am going to be a good Christian. I'm going to have a good witness. So when somebody throws a rock through my window hitting me in the face, I'm going to immediately start praying. You know what I mean? You can, you can try to think that. But how many of you realize that you aren't going to premeditate those types of reactions? What does the Bible say? Those things come from the abundance that's stored up in your heart. 
If we desire to be a light, to be an example, to be the salt that God has called us to be, we can't pre-plan for that moment when our light is going to shine. We can't anticipate what the situation will look like and pre-meditate and pre-plan. What we can do is fill ourselves with God's love. But Hansio had never thought ahead, okay, the next time this happens, this is what I'm going to do. No. But he had filled himself with the knowledge of God's heart for the people that he was trying to reach. And so when, when they lashed out to hurt him, what came out of him was God's heart for them because that is what he had treasured in his heart. That is what he treasured in his heart. I'm going to say this. We need to be intentional about what we treasure in our hearts. What does this mean? That means going intentionally to Scripture, filling ourselves with what we know is God's heart. But you know what that also means? That means putting a filter at your heart's door. That means... The scripture that says whatsoever things are good, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, think on these things. We become intentional about that. If, if we want to respond to people with God's heart, then we have to be intentional about what we, we treasure in our heart. What does treasuring in your heart look like? It means rehashing in your mind. Rethinking, considering, meditating. I like what somebody said. They said that meditation is kind of like a cow. And how many of you, we're, we don't live in such a farming community anymore where everybody's familiar with this, but what a cow does, it goes and it just stuffs itself with grass. And then it'll go find a spot, sit down, and a cow has multiple stomachs. It regurgitates up that grass from one stomach, chews it up really good, and then swallows it down into the other stomach. They just, they, they sit down and they meditate. They ruminate is one of the words that we use. Just thinking on that. We need to be intentional about what we put in, but then also filter what we rehash and reconsider and how what we focus on and what we think about Psalms 119.11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. So good. We got to put that in our heart. Matthew 5.13 says, you are the salt of the earth. Say it with me. I am the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its savor, what should, with it, what? With what shall it be salted? It is no longer good for anything. We're the salt. But the salt has to have flavor. If you have salt that doesn't have flavor, it just tastes like nothing. You put that on your food and it just tastes like the food doesn't impact. It doesn't change anything. We are called to be the salt. It says, what good is it but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men? You are the light of the world. Say it with me. I am a light. Am light. A city on a hill that cannot be hidden. But nor do men light a lamp and put it under a grain measure but they put it on a lampstand and it goes to give light to all who are in the house. We are salt, we are light, we are called to be different. And as we consider, here, those who are closest to us, they will be impacted, the Bible says, by 
our testimony. Not by our statements, but by our character and our lives. The Bible says in Luke 6.30, it says, Give to everyone who asks of you, and from him who takes away your goods, do not ask them again. And as you desire that men should do to you, you do also to them likewise. For if you love those who love you, what thanks do you have? For sinners also love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what thanks do you have? Realize, so many of us have followed it. He says, this is the world's pattern. The world's pattern is, hey, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You can count on me if I could already count on you. If you're doing me well, I'll do, I'll do well by you. But he says, that's not the way that Christians should be. We should stand out. We should taste different. Because regardless of how we've been treated, we respond with love. He says in verse uh, 34, And if you lend to those of whom you hope to receive, what thanks do you have? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good. Lend, hoping or expecting for nothing in return. And your reward shall be great. And you shall be sons of the highest. For he is kind and thankful to the unthankful. There we go. <laughs> for he is kind to the unthankful and to the evil. Therefore, be merciful, even as your father is merciful. When we habitually live that kind of contrast to the world, it will be noticed. It just will. When we live that life, and I think I've, I've talked about this before, but one of the challenges, I would say the challenge of leading someone to the Lord. And again, remember, you may not, you may do all the work and someone else gets to pick the apple. But as long as you guys can hang out in heaven, who cares? We're not doing that for recognition. We want to, to be there. We're going to sow. The challenge is that we don't see the progress. The progress is invisible. It's happening, but we don't see it. I don't remember if I used this illustration recently, but, but I remember in college hanging out with some friends of ours. We were, I, I could tell you, I could take you to the booth in the bagel shop where we were sitting. I remember it that clearly. And we're sitting there, and they brought up somebody, and they were kind of complaining about this person's behavior. And I was just listening along, and I piped in, and I said something to the effect of, yes, you know, I agree, I've seen that too. They, you know, that's, that's obnoxious behavior, whatever. And as soon as I said it, one of, one of my friends who, you know, I had known for a year in school, turns to me and says, I think that's the first time I've heard you talk bad about somebody. Why didn't you tell me that 10 minutes ago? And I wouldn't have said it. We don't know. When, when people are, are watching our witness, they don't typically advertise that they're watching our witness. We're making progress. We're having, it, it's, it's happening. But they don't, they don't come and say, oh, by the way, this is the 372nd day in a row that I've watched and, and you have kept a smile on your face even when the boss was being difficult. When you've treated the, the, the people in, in, on the work line that you don't need to treat with respect, with respect. They don't, they don't typically come and tell you, but when you blow it, then sometimes you find out, oh, they did notice. 
Romans, or excuse me, Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. Paul is instructing the people in this church, and he says, Continue in prayer and watch in it with thanksgiving, praying together about us also, that God may open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I also have been bound. Paul is instructing them what to pray, not just to pray. He didn't just say, hey, pray. He says, pray that. And then he tells them, pray that words would be given to me. That's I'm looking at the next one. I'm looking at Colossians 4, 23. It says, pray that God may open us a door for the word. What do you think it means when he says open a door? Do, is he, was he talking about a wooden door? No, not at all. He was talking about opportunities. Paul shows us in Scripture, it is, it is biblical to pray for opportunities. It is biblical to pray for opportunities. Man, that is exciting. That is exciting to realize that we have a right to pray for opportunities. Paul says, do that for me. Give me opportunities. I, my, my favorite story along this line was, um, who knows, maybe the prices have finally gotten down to this same level, but there was some freakish situation where prices were incredibly cheap and you could buy a ticket from the U.S. to Paris and back again for $250. And I was studying French at the time, and I was like, well, I'm going to go check it out. So I bought a ticket. I didn't know anybody. And I just went. And, and I was trying to get a hold of missionaries and call different people. Hey, does anybody know anybody? And, and I had one missionary who said, oh, well, when you're in town, give us a call. That was it. And I showed up in Paris, and I had my backpack, and, and I headed off towards a hostel, which is a hotel where they give you roommates, really cheap. And I get there, but before I, I arrived, all the way over and planning for the trip, I kept praying, God, give me opportunities. Give me opportunities. Pray, I give me opportunities. So I get there, I show up, the hostel is full, and there's an Australian guy who shows up at the same time as me. And we show up, and they said, we're full, but across town is another hostel, similar price, similar situation. You know, you can get there. Um, and so we're both heading over there. I spoke some French. He didn't speak any. So he says, hey, can I, can I come along with you? I said, yeah. And uh, so we're walking across Paris together, and he's, we're just starting to get to know each other. And it didn't take him long to realize that I was a Christian because he asked, well, where are you going to school and what are you studying to be and what do you plan to do? And, and you know, well, I'm, I'm at a Christian college and I just finished a Bible school and I'm planning to be a missionary. And so, okay, he knows that I'm a Christian. And he says to me, so what do you believe about God? How many realize that's a door opening? Mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't have to shout him down. I didn't have to say, oh, well, now that I've got you for the next 20 minutes, I'm going to... No. We just have a conversation, and he says to me, what do you believe about God? And I gave him a simple explanation. Just, I believe God created the entire world. He did it because he wanted to have a relationship with us. He wanted that relationship to be meaningful. If we don't have free will, it's not a meaningful relationship. So he gave us free will, and we blew it. We sinned. Sin and God don't mix. That sin had to be removed. So he sent Jesus to die, pay the price for the sin. Now, he still wants a meaningful relationship. And if, if that forgiveness had been applied automatically, it wouldn't be a meaningful relationship. We just simply need, with our free will, to accept that relationship. And he looks at me. In the next service, I'll tell them, he looked at me with square eyes. That's how you say in Spanish when they look astonished. He says, I, he looks at me and he says, you know, people have told me I was going to hell before, 
But nobody ever explained it that way. Listen, it wasn't magic. It was the simplest concept. He says, no one. And then he says, huh? he just like gets, gets all excited. He says, 30 minutes before I met you, I was standing in the Cathedral of Notre Dame. That's the, the famous cathedral that since then burnt and uh, they're trying to reconstruct right now. He said, I was standing there and there were candles there and I lit one of the candles and I said, God, if you're real, send me a sign. I think you're that sign. Now, that was an opportunity. I didn't know he was in the cathedral asking God for a sign. How many people in Holland, Michigan have prayed that prayer? How many people have prayed that prayer? We don't know. But it's interesting that Jesus said that the harvest is plentiful, and he didn't say, pray for the harvest. He said, the harvest is plentiful, pray for laborers. Because God knows where the harvest is. What he needs is people who are willing to be the laborers, who are willing to ask for those opportunities. I believe that when I prayed, give me an opportunity, God was like, oh, there's one. Okay. He put us together. I could go on and on about different examples of times when we prayed. But here, here's the thing. And if you come to this church, I promise you, I will put these two scriptures together again. You will hear this again. Are you ready? Because I love this combo of scriptures. Colossians 4.2.3 says, I have the right to pray for opportunities. Ephesians 6.19 says this. Again, Paul is instructing them what to pray. Another group of people. He says, and pray for me that utterance or words may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds so that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Another translation says, pray that words would be given to me when I open my mouth. So many of us are like, oh man, I don't know about this. If I, have, if I pray for an opportunity, then I have to say something. But what do I, what would I do? The Bible says you can ask for the words. You can ask for the opportunity that's a godly biblical prayer. And you can ask for the words that's a godly biblical prayer. Paul says, pray for me that when I open my mouth, Words would be given. What did he have to do? He had to open his mouth. He had to respond. But the words come from God. When, when I shared with that, that Australian fellow, I, that, it was not something amazing. It's just simply what I knew and understood. Just, hey, this is what I believe. And I believe that God anointed those words. He used them. The Bible says, and, and I need you to understand something. The Bible says no one comes to the Father except that the Spirit draws them. Don't, don't get all worried thinking that it's your eloquence that is going to bring someone to the Lord. You don't have to get the words right. It is his Holy Spirit. When God sees that opportunity and you have prayed to be given an opportunity, he'll connect you. When, when you pray for those words and you begin to speak, God will use those words. He doesn't change your vocabulary. He anoints the words and he uses his spirit to draw that person's heart. You don't have to be afraid that you're going to get the words wrong or right or how that's going to come out. You just pray, God, give me the words. 
use them, and then let them go. And know and trust that it's the Holy Spirit who's doing that work. We are so blessed to be children of God. We are so blessed to be salt and light. God is calling us to taste different, to look different. That's what's going to draw people in. Is our conduct. I pray, I encourage you, pray that prayer. Ask for opportunities. I pray for opportunities in my life. When, when someone comes to me and is asking about someone in, in their life, I pray for, for opportunities. I pray for the laborers around them because that's what Jesus did. He said, pray for the laborers. The, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. When people pray about the laborers, guess who they're praying about? It's us. It's us, but we don't need to be nervous. We can be excited. We can pray for those opportunities. How many of you ever heard the name Smith Wigglesworth? Smith Wigglesworth was a evangelist who, before coming to Christ, could barely read. I can't remember if he was a plumber or a uh, cobbler, but he was a cobbler? A plumber. It was a plumber. Okay. He was a plumber, could barely read. But when he got saved, he got excited about the gospel. And he says that before he became an evangelist, before any of those things, he would take his lunch break and he would go to a park and he would say, God, give me an opportunity. And now the scripture says you can ask for an opportunity. Smith Wigglesworth took it a step further and he would pray for an opportunity to someone who was closest to death. That was his prayer. He would pray, God, you know, send me to someone who is close to death. And he shares a story about how he, he was there and he felt God highlight a person. So he went up to that person who was in a cart with a horse at this time because this is how long ago it was. And he went up to that man and he said, I feel like God wants me to talk to you. Would you be okay if I talk to you about something? He says, well, as long as you walk with me. So he did. He walked with the guy. He shared the gospel with him. The man got saved. And I don't remember how many days it was later. He was in an accident and he passed away. And I shared this with a group of teenagers here in West Michigan one time. And I was sharing the story and I said, God has authorized you to pray for opportunities. And I told them the story about Smith Wigglesworth and I said, you know, it's not in the scripture per se, but I don't see why not. He prayed that God would open him, give him an opportunity with someone who's close to death. And there was like a 16-year-old girl who said, okay, I'm going to pray that prayer. And she prayed that God would give her an opportunity. And she worked at McDonald's. And one of the, the kids that she worked there with in the next couple of days came and asked her to explain her faith. So she explained her faith. That girl got saved, was in a car accident the next day. She came so excited. She's like, you know, I mean, obviously not excited that she'd passed away, but excited that she knew that she had led this person to the Lord right before. And I'm not saying that you pray and people die. You're not, I'm not giving you the power to pray people to death. But what I'm saying is God knows who is at death's door. And he is looking for people who are willing to step into those opportunities. Who, like Jeremiah, will say, here I am, Lord, send me. Let's, let's be that. And let's be aware that we, there are days and times when all we are doing is planting seed. We're living a testimony. And it may be that you plant 99% of the seed. You put down 99% of the water in that person's life, especially if they're close to you. And then someone else 
may be used to harvest. But I believe, <laughs> I believe that God, when we get to heaven, is going to somehow make us aware of what an impact we had. There's an old song. How many of you know the song I'm thinking of? There's a song that says, I dreamt I went to heaven, and you were there with me. And then he goes on and he sings about how he got to heaven, and there was this line of people who said, I'm here because of you. You didn't know it, but you gave in an offering. You didn't know it, but you, you were an example. And I came here. I'm here in heaven because of what you did. I desire that for each and every one of you, that when we get to heaven, we find and discover so many people who were brought closer to God through our testimony. And we'll realize many of them we never knew the impact that we had, but they are, are, are eternally impacted. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for every person that is here today. I thank you for every person who is watching online or listening. Lord, we just pray that you would inspire them to not grow weary in doing good, to recognize the power that their testimony has, how they can, without words, win people to the Lord. Lord, we also pray that you would give us boldness, boldness to ask for opportunities, boldness to ask that when those opportunities come, you would put the words in our mouth. We recognize that it is not in our worldly wisdom that we can lead someone to the Lord, but it is through the drawing of your Holy Spirit and by making ourselves available to be used by you in faith. And we just thank you for it. 